Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. It was one year ago this week that we launched The Evolver podcast. At the time, we were seeing the rapid growth of the consciousness movement. This became clear by simply watching who came through the door at Evolver's botanical dispensary in downtown Manhattan, The Alchemist's Kitchen. There's a booming interest in meditation, yoga, plant medicine, shamanism, energy healing, witchery, psychedelics, psychic phenomena, mediumship, the whole panoply of consciousness modalities that, when pursued with discernment and a healthy skepticism, can lead you towards a wholesale reevaluation of what it means to be human. By skepticism, I don't mean cynicism or knee-jerk materialism. Skepticism is healthy. Believing in something of a spiritual nature that you don't experience directly yourself and don't verify by comparing to the direct experience of others is not, in my opinion, a good idea. But once you begin to pay attention to the messages of spirit that are being left at your front door, don't be surprised if those messages are piling up, and you begin a practice or two that sensitizes you to the subtle, beautiful potential that every human carries innately simply by being born wild things start to happen. From editing Reality Sandwich, producing online classes, programming events, and building community through the Alchemist Kitchen, those of us at Evolver could see just how many more people were opening up spiritually in this way. And crucially, they were becoming more comfortable sharing about these very personal experiences. I'm not just talking about happy hippie couch surfers, which is to say, my friends. At some level, that's always been going on. But now we were hearing these stories from lawyers, hedge fund managers, marketing executives, financial planners, and real estate developers. Something had shifted, and dramatically. Maybe it's because 37 million Americans are now doing yoga, and 9% of the workforce is meditating. These ancient practices were designed specifically to open people to spirit. They may be propagating through gyms and corporate offices because of their physical health benefits. They do help you to stay sharp, lower your stress level, keep you in shape. But whether your gym yoga instructor is aware of it or not, these practices do more than that. Not everyone, but some people, if they do their yoga right, they're going to have a kundalini awakening. Or if you sit in meditation long enough and diligently enough, eventually you're going to see light with your eyes closed. Now, the instructors at Crunch Gym might not know what to tell you when these things happen. I know a few people who had kundalini awakenings at the gym, and the teacher suggested they should go see a doctor. But these are the kinds of invitations to spiritual awareness that are hard to ignore. These things are happening, and people are more comfortable talking about it. They also want to hear the stories of others to help them make sense of their own journey. That's the purpose of this series, to give pioneering figures in the consciousness culture an opportunity to talk about their own awakening experience and how they bring that awareness into what they do in the world. We've had amazing guests and fascinating, fun conversations. I've learned a lot. The territory is so vast, you can never cover it all, though we have done quite a bit. This week, we decided to do a little retrospective, a taster of past episodes, where we revisit some discussions that reward another listen. Today, you'll be hearing from Kim Kranz, Alex Gray, Josh Radner, Paul Selig, three people from ICEers, Dennis McKenna, Ben Belonen, and Andrea Langlois, and Starhawk. I hope you enjoy it. We start with my conversation with the artist Kim Kranz about the origins of her popular tarot deck, 
the wild unknown, which has made Kim a kind of cult hero in certain circles. Up until that time, she had been a painter in the New York gallery world, pursuing a more conventional form of success. Then something happened, as she describes here, and she found herself birthing a tarot deck and venturing herself into the wild unknown. I would say that dissatisfaction in what is or agitation is like a leading, very potent ingredient in the little vessel that we're working in in our studios. So the deck that you created, yes, it works as its own, as an artwork in itself, but it's also in a way a kind of criticism of previous tarot decks. <laughs> <laughs> is that fair? You can say that. Yeah, that's a way that you could say it. Well, I mean, listen, what you, here's what you did. You docked at the court cards. You like went, <laughs> oh, the page, the knight, the queen, the king. Goodbye. We're going to do <laughs> Those don't work for me. I'm going to. Well, <laughs> it all, you know, it all filters through such a personal um, channel in the end. It's like those terms didn't work for me. I couldn't dig into them. And I figured if I can't dig into these, some of my friends probably can't dig into these terms either. Like, you know, what's a page? Come on, just give me, give me something I can really dig into. Man, I got my PhD in pagedom. <laughs> <laughs> when I made the tarot deck, I had just left New York City. I was there for 14 years. I was showing in galleries, the art market had kind of tanked, and so much of what I thought my life was going to look like, which was just a successful gallery artist, had crumbled. And I was devastated. Meanwhile, I had just moved into a church in Philadelphia, was living in there as like a loft space, a renovated church. And I'd always wanted to draw the tarot because I just felt like the ideas were so cool and there were no decks that I could really sink my teeth into visually. The feeling I had when I was making that deck was almost like a giving over to something else, to something that I didn't understand. And I wasn't trying to prove myself in a gallery. I wasn't trying to chase what I thought my life should look like. I just got really immersed in the themes and the archetypes of the deck. And I knew something different was happening. And at this point, I would look back on that. And maybe with a little hesitation, I would use a word like channeling. But you might just say like being available for what's bigger than you to move through you. That's what happened when I was making that deck. I mean, sometimes I don't even feel like it's mine. I'm just like, it's this other thing that kind of happened. Was there a moment when you were drawing one of the cards where you went, oh, this is different? It happened when I drew the hermit card and it happened when I drew the chariot card in a big way. Interesting. You know, I... I I was just around that time reading this text. I don't know if it's from the Upanishads or, or some like yogic scripture that talks about like this white horse at the center of the heart. It's just this beautiful image that it's leading us forward all the time. It knows like exactly where we're going, even if we don't know. But I had just drawn that card and I, I read that, like, I don't know, in the following days. And I was like, oh my God, what is happening with this deck? It almost felt like a kind of lightning moving through. And I was just like, oh, I got to get this thing out because it's so has so much energy in it that I don't really understand. So putting it out was kind of a relief. And I put it out and it started to sell so quickly and there was no guidebook. And people were coming up with all kinds of like, I don't know, just somewhat disorienting interpretations of the cards. So I wrote the guidebook by hand in like such a short amount of time. It's like the whole thing just spilled out. It was really wild. Yeah. So before you actually began to work on the, the tarot deck, what connection did you have to tarot? Were you doing readings for other people by that point? I was just dissatisfied with it. It's so funny how these things happen. I had a crazy aversion to it. I kind of hated it because I couldn't find a deck that worked for me. And I was just like, 
what is up with this? Why I would read guidebooks. I would read about the, the archetypes themselves, but I wasn't working with decks because I would push back on every single one I held in my hand. You were circling the tarot. Like, exactly. Did you have a reading at some point that made a difference for you? It was just this constant agitation. It was like finding something that's just like never fits right. And, and, and that agitation stays with you. If you think of the pearl coming from sand, it comes from that grit, the actual agitation of the grit you know, you're, you're like the alchemist kitchen. So I'm going to go ahead with these alchemical, um, metaphors. And one of the, of the alchemist's favorite images is the pearl that it comes from agitation. It comes from grit. And I would say that this deck came from that, the unsettling, you know, if I had found a deck that I was like pretty into and was pretty into tarot in general, I wouldn't have made this. More than a few people I know have had the experience, when seeing a painting by Alex Gray for the first time, that they had spied that visionary moment before, in the privacy of their mind's eye. Alex's images can act like diagrams that capture the elusive movement of spiritual energy and demonstrate how that light manifests. Many first get that flash of insight during a psychedelic journey, but then it fades so quickly. Alex's paintings bring back the vividness of those moments so they can be lived with while subtly altering your sense of what's going on in the material world. I had the pleasure of visiting with Alex Gray at the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, the visionary art sanctuary he leads with his wife, Allison, in upstate New York, where we talked about the influences and intentions behind his work. Is there something I want to ask you about in terms of the, that working with that dark? Because... That also, you know, the chaos factor of working with that material can actually open up an awful lot of creative space. Absolutely. And I think that artists inevitably have to deal with all those energies, you know, the creative, the destructive, and the counterproductive. And, you know, I think that the path of art has been a, a really wonderful and open uh, kind of way to hold our spiritual opening, you know, because if you don't have to classify it as a particular denomination or sacred tradition, you know, if you get more aligned with the universal mystical opening, like the mystical experience, and see where that is the same kind of river flowing through all the different traditions and that this, it's the same pure strand that runs through it all. And it's possible, you know, for anybody to get in contact with it because it's the thread that keeps us alive, you know. And uh, so once you kind of reorient yourself and your artwork to that mystical dimension, that's why I think that creating a sanctuary of visionary art is worthwhile doing because it creates like a battery of those kind of healing insights that come from the mystical dimensions. Anyone who is like in these studies that the psychedelic science has been performing is anyone who's gotten a healing is basically because they have a mystical experience, you know? Right. And that is more in the spiritual slash religious end of things. We can keep it in the medical psychoanalytic framework if we wish to play legal uh, games with the government and stuff and, and try to prove uh, scientifically that this stuff works. Every hippie could tell you that, but they have to prove it. And once they do, then there's irrefutable evidence that try everything that they can to stop it. We've finally been able to prove this shit is good for you. That's been an amazing, amazing journey for a lot of for certain people. It really is fantastic to see that. Yeah. You 
capture the light so beautifully in your work. And I do wonder whether you could have done that without having depicted the dark as deeply as you did at one time. Well, I think that um, my forays into more transgressive grounds, I think, really taught me the value of an ethical standing in one's work and that that was actually a thing. That if you didn't watch yourself, you could morally or ethically, you know, slide down a slippery slope, especially if you were as negative a mindset as I was. And so I think that it really, really helps to uh, work with those energies in some way. You know, to an art is one of those perfect mediums where you can wrestle with your shadows and hopefully it's not going to hurt anybody. You can portray things which you would never want really to see, but you saw in your scary hell visit that you had. And uh, so you somehow want to get the monster out of the box. Psychologists say that there's really only one way to transform a negative state, and that's if you can objectively look at the subjective state that you're troubled by. And so with art, you have a method that literally objectifies your subjective state. So there you have it, something that you can contemplate, monster out of the box, now in a different state. Now not confined, now somehow different, things have changed. So now you have another perspective on the shadow. Now maybe you can own it and move on, or if you can't heal something, you can acknowledge that you sometimes feel that way that this is a record of, of that. And so I regard like performances and drawings and paintings and stuff that was done in the more focused in a negative or dark state, which was very catalyzing for me. It was like, wow, this is an energy I can work from. This was very creatively inspiring to me. And I could tell that it was very seductive in a way, to be negative. It was like 1978 or something like that. We had just done the first kind of group performance like thing, Allison and I. It was mostly, I suppose, I was directing it and uh, I wanted to give a lecture about life energy, you know, about the chi and the prana and the psychic energies and Kirlian photography and all the, the kind of stuff that was inspiring me at the time that was influencing my work. It was 1978, uh -huh. 77, 78. I hadn't really painted any of my psychic energy system kind of things yet. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so at this life energy performance, I did two charts. They were life-size charts, black and white uh, drawings. And, and one was the nervous system and one was a simple chakra chart with uh, auras around it and stuff. And they were trying to present two different ideas about consciousness and life energy. And so you stand in front of it like a mirror and you try and get in touch with your own life energy system, you know. Oh, cool. Your nervous system and your, you know, like your acupuncture meridians and points and chakras and stuff like that. So they were two charts and... Uh, we did a variety of exercises together as a community. And then, like, at the end of the thing, I warned people before this, but then I thought one should witness the passing of life energy. And so I had a rat that I had gotten and that uh, the medical lab that I worked near had given me a guillotine for the rat. They had a guillotine for the rat? Yeah, because they did rat experiments. So after we did that, no one wanted to talk to us. You did that? You did, did on stage? I did that, yeah. Announced? Not unannounced? No, I, 
I warned you everybody, warned everybody that this is now we've reached this part where there's we're going to witness the passing of life energy. So I want to warn you and tell you what's going to happen. Those who there might be some who might want to leave at this point before I do this. Well, had you rehearsed this at home? No. No. Okay. This is a first and last time? First and last time. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well. So after I did it, I felt terrible. Yeah. It was like everybody, all of us did. So everybody was hushed. Everybody left quietly. And Allison and I were walking home. Really like, oh, we fucked it up. And yeah. so Allison said, you know, people really love the charts. <laughs> That's very positive. Yeah. <laughs> what you ought to do is a whole series of paintings based on that. Uh-huh. Thus, the sacred mirrors were born. You went straight to the sacred mirrors from the rat. I didn't that realize that. That was the inspiration. <gasps> oh. Wouldn't have happened unless I killed. That's the sacred mirror. That's amazing. Wow. And that's such a beautiful, huge, complete vision. So let's talk about this Immediately, for a Immediately, yeah. it was like bang. I saw the entire series. That's it awesome. It took me 10 years to do. Yeah. You, know? you saw it right away. I, oh, immediately. Before I sat down for a discussion with the actor director Josh Radner, I hadn't quite realized how deeply he was committed to his own spiritual pursuits and how thoughtful he could be when sharing them. We somehow don't expect that from our sitcom stars, even if they've already proven themselves in many arenas. Josh has directed critically acclaimed movies and is in a two-man band with the wonderful Ben Lee. But this conversation was a thoughtful, rollicking hoot, including this part when Josh talks about how ayahuasca got him to stop drinking. I felt like I was being asked slash invited to stop drinking. And I called my friend who... Uh, got sober when I was in grad school at NYU. And he's a dear friend of mine, still one of my best friends. And I called him from the Miami airport and I said, I think I'm, I'm supposed to stop drinking. And I started crying because I was like, it was so emotional for me, the idea that I could have a social life without drinking. I was just a guy who ordered drinks everywhere, you know? So uh, he said a great thing. He said, um, nature loves a vacuum. And you take away all that energy and all that psychic space and everything you're doing, something else is going to come in. And, and interestingly, my career took some changes after that. Like I, you know. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I started directing films. Yeah. 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 You think that wouldn't have happened if you were still drinking? Who's to say? And, and again, I'm hesitant because I drank a little bit last year. I'm hesitant to like get on podcasts and say, I don't drink. And someone's going to see me with a glass of wine and be whatever. But, um, you know, from, from, from where I am right now, I've done enough research to know like alcohol and me is not a great combo if I want to live a kind of creative, engaged, conscious life that I'm, that I'm aspiring to. That's so cool. Did yeah. you, did you find you were doing TM before you went to Brazil? Yeah. In my ayahuasca experience in New York, yeah. every so often folks will show up who do transcendental meditation mm-hmm. and they're like, you know, when I was young, I did psychedelics and that's what turned me on to spiritual stuff. Right. When I started doing TM, you're not supposed to be doing that. Right. Don't tell anybody I'm here. You know these three other people in my TM circle. Yeah. Never mention to them yeah. that I am here with you tonight drinking yeah. ayahuasca. I'm, I, I've been in enough spiritual groups that have like rules and boundaries and borders and regulations that I don't, I don't buy any of it. You know, there, there's that phrase, that Lao Tzu quote, that everyone quotes all the time, but they miss the second part of it. Oh, what's so that? the first part is uh, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. The second part of it, less quoted, is when the student is really ready, the teacher will disappear. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So I found that part of my journey around these teachers and these spiritual groups is the leaving of them is a powerful moment in the teaching. And I feel that any teacher who is creating a dependency and not empowering you to go out, you know, like I think Adyashanti, you know, that spiritual, he's a, a Buddhist spiritual teacher. You know, he was told at one point by his teacher, like, get out. Like, you got to leave the monastery and go teaching, teach now. Like, you got to get out of here. And I, and I feel like that's a wise teacher who, who kicks you out of your comfort and who also says, you're, you're becoming too dependent on me. You know, 
Yeah. Well, um, that's a that's a also a healthy teacher who isn't playing into the ego game. Exactly. Of the, the exactly. power trip of and I've needing been, the people to I've come to their so door. I've been so hooked by teachers. So hooked. And and part of it is this. Um, you know, everything is. Uh, part of it is a sweet impulse, which is like, I'm a good student. I want, I, I recognize that the world is madness and my mind is madness and I need some guidance and some help. But the darker part of it is, you know, shame or uh, a feeling that I can't do this without some like steady hand, you know? And part of growing up for me has been saying like, I think I can, I think I know enough to stand on my own two feet. And I don't recommend that to everyone. I mean, I think some people really need, I would recommend certain people like, no, 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 find a community, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. get a teacher. <laughs> but, but for me, there were these painful kind of what felt archetypal, you know, it was time to go. Yeah. yeah. It, I actually, what I think is going on, and I kind of have a quirky vantage point from doing the sort of work I've been doing for the last few years, yeah. is that an awful lot of people are doing what you do. They're going into one modality and another and another, maybe simultaneously. They're doing the TM yeah. and the IOI or whatever. They're doing some meditation yeah. and a plant-based you yeah. know, sort of ex exploration. And maybe they're also learning Qigong. And I was talking about this with John Kabat-Zinn, mm -hmm. meditation teacher. Yeah, I love couple, his books. Yeah. He's an amazing guy. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago. And his immediate response to that was, well, you know, that's just like supermarket shopping. Right. Right. You're not committing to go deep. Right. In a lineage. Right. And that is how I kind of grew up hearing about these things. Right. Like the idea is that, in fact, you should commit. But I got to say, I'm coming more and more around to the other way of seeing it. Mm -hmm. That there's something really powerful about going deep and being true to yourself and knowing what you need in order to grow. Right. But, you know, sampling all kinds of different modalities so that you can discover, in fact, what's underneath them beyond the sort of the cultural overlays. Yeah. It's a little bit like someone saying, like, don't travel to lots of places, travel to one place and go deep into the culture. And it's like, well, it's really fun to travel to lots of different places. <laughs> there's fascinating places on the earth and there's fascinating traditions mm -hmm. and there's lots of tributaries pointing to the one ocean. But it's you know? also true that when you go to one culture, you only see what that culture is really interested in. Right. So like some cultures are really into spicy food, right? right? But they don't do ice cream, right. let's just say, right? right. But you want to also like learn about ice cream. <laughs> so sure, you kind of yeah. go somewhere but else. But also, you know, I'm really, I'm really clear on this idea that everyone's only ever talking about themselves. So John Kabat-Zinn is like, he's a mindfulness practitioner and that's what he's done and that's what he's gone deep in and that's what he's written his books about. And that's, so of course he's going to, he's going to advocate for that, mm -hmm. you know, but I feel ultimately like you know i have i have you know i've studied the vedas i've been you know with the you know the Karos tribe in peru and i've been to india to different ashrams and all these different things you know and they've all been powerful in their own ways but i i keep coming back to this idea you know um there's this famous aldous huxley at the end of his life was asked you know at the, a lifetime of spiritual seeking um, you've, you've done it all. You've taken every substance you've, you've, you've sat with every tribe. What did you get? Like what, what, if you could synthesize it, what, what did you get? And he said, you know, I'm a little embarrassed to admit, but this is it. Just try to be a little kinder. Ooh. Right. Yeah. And I, and I really, I, I keep coming back to this, like no fuss spirituality. Like we all know people who are, you know, who have the altar and who have the whatever, but they're a mess or they're gossipy or they're, you know what I mean? Like they feel out of integrity, but they're doing all the things. They're wearing all the costumes oh and all that stuff. Yeah, of course. And then I know people who, you know, wouldn't know a what a mantra is or what, you know, uh, anything. They don't know who Krishna is or <laughs> Ganesh in their doorway. It doesn't matter. But they're intensely empathetic. They're intensely, um, you know, charitable or kind or just a, a good friend. And that's what I'm starting to feel like spirituality is because if it's not leading to that, I do think it's worthless. Then it's just, then it's just costumes and fetishes and, and uh, it's, you're trying to find a personality through cultural appropriation. Oh no, there's an awful lot you of know? that. And, and this is what, you know, Trungpa writes about as spiritual materialism. Right, exactly. It's essentially like, hey man, I know how to meditate because I got the robes and yeah. I got a great cushion. Look at my cushion. Right. You know, I, right. sit there, I can sit there for hours. It's right. so comfortable. It's the best cushion. Right. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. 
Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Most people know less about Paul Selig than they do about the guides he channels. Those guides have delivered seven books through Paul, six now available, and a seventh to be released this August. When you read any of them, such as the first, I Am the Word, the teachings do not come from Paul. As he puts it, he's just taking dictation. Our society doesn't give much credence to mediumship, let alone study it with any rigor to understand the fundaments of what's going on. But even advanced mystical schools don't really have much to say about how mediumship works or how best to be an effective channel. So, for one of our episodes, I visited with Paul Selig in his Chelsea apartment for an intimate conversation about what it's like for him to hold space for and give voice to such powerful, high-vibrational emanations. There's a deeper interconnection relationship between this person-incarnated self and these energetic forces that are... Well, like I said in the in the most recent book, the one that just was published, the Book of Freedom, that you've done this before. Yeah. Well, that's what they've said to me. I've worked with them before. This isn't a new relationship. This is ongoing. Previous lifetime. The few past life memories I have around this kind of thing aren't all that pleasant. We can get into that some other conversation. But the idea of, of identity already is a questionable thing. And, you know, the, the, personal, the personality self, they say, is an idea, you know, and it's, it's a compilation of a lot of history and societal impact and when we were born into the world and all of those things that makes up the idea of who we are. I don't get that they operate in personality in the same way, but I do think that they use it as an opportunity that is recognizable to me. Do you understand this? Yeah. So when I first, there was a period when I was channeling, it was around the time of the second book, and the recordings are really interesting for that, because an accent began to emerge. And some days to me it sounded Scottish, and some days it sounded British, and it was like, what the hell is this? And then it landed. And the entire book was dictated in that voice. And occasionally I'll channel and there'll be a booming British voice that comes out. Now, and my question was at the time, well, do they have British accents or did was this created for me? I mean, to understand the division. I mean, I really don't know. And basically I didn't know, no, this is us. This is what I got. But I also realized that when I was channeling, and this is back when I was doing stuff in my apartment, I always used to be relieved when the guy with the accent showed up because I trusted it and the cadence of the language was so clear and the word choices. But the funny thing is, if you read the texts, the sentence structure is all comparable. The word choices are all comparable. I've never called anybody my fellows in my life, but the guides will often say you and your fellows, you know, that's their language. Period, 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 they say all the time. I've never said it in my life. I mean, to me, it's, why would I say that? In the fifth book, the book of truth, that actually, the entire book felt like it was delivered by a different guide. If you hear the recordings of that book, and a lot of that was delivered at Esalen in front of students, it's so careful and so thoughtful. It's literally, if you listen, it was like I was reading a book that was already written. And I was just, it was that simple, 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 all the way through. But this guide kept saying, dears, we'd like you to know dears. And it's like, I like, I've never said dears in my life. And I'm now I've got to put up a whole book where that's a vocabulary word. Somebody actually wrote me, I don't know who it was. I got some email from somebody saying, please tell your guides not to use the word dears. <laughs> but I also got an email once from somebody saying, Paul, tell your guides to stop using the word Christ 
because it's turning a lot of people off and you you need to stop the whispering and repeating because you're not marketable. And I thought, what a load of horse shit. First of all, if I had any choice in in the language, it would be something else. And I don't think that the guides know what branding is or could ever care less, you know? That's some other idea. None of this work is convenient. It's not convenient to me. It's not convenient necessarily to the reader because it tends to challenge our sense of who we are. So my experience visually has been primarily of one guide that I've seen who appears in a very specific way to me when I see him. And I'm grateful when I see him. And I think if I had a better meditation practice, I'd probably see him all day long. But I don't. I'm I'm a lazy channel. Do you, you know? meditate? Not like, no, I really don't. Did you ever have a meditation practice? I had a practice in my 30s, which was mostly about clearing energy. So it wasn't so much. I mean, I was working very, very, very diligently for a number of years. And in retrospect, I think that work paid dividends. I really did oh, yeah. support my availability to what I'm doing. But I'm channeling so much. I mean, I do an average of, I'm channeling every, you know, an average of three weekends a month and every Wednesday nights, plus my private practice. And the guides have delivered probably, I don't know how many thousands of pages of material. I mean, what's in the books, and that's seven books, quadruple that because they're lecturing all the time anyway. And it's always different. It's always ongoing. And the meditation in some ways has become the experience of channeling. I have a question I've been thinking about a bit. The books lay out a practice. Is it a religion? No, and it's not a practice either. Um, I mean, I think people want to practice because they want to attach to it. I don't think it's a practice in a formal way. I think it's, it may be a system and a system of development. There are six books in print and the seventh on the way. They all build on each other. And I know that people enter into the book late in the series, and that's fine. The guides say they teach in a one-room schoolhouse, and they catch people up. But... It's not a religion, and they say explicitly in the books that it can and won't be. That's not the purpose of this. What makes it not a religion? I suspect what makes it not a religion? Because there's, I mean, if you come at the books without... You know, they answered it once, and I don't remember what the answer was. They don't tell anybody what to do, if you haven't noticed this. If you read these books... They don't tell anybody what to do. They're honoring free will. They don't want your authority. I don't want your authority. The moment somebody tries to give me authority, I give it right back to them. I am not interested in that bullshit that comes with that level of of importance that people can ascribe themselves, you know, to themselves. The guides really don't want it. This is a teaching about being. It's a teaching of realization. It's a realization of who you truly are, not who you think you want to be, and not what it's like to be spiritual, which is usually some other ego-based idea. I'm going to be enlightened first in my lifetime when I say so. I mean, I think that's still personality stuff. I think the unfoldment that they're teaching is to the individual. And I know that they're teaching to the collective now. I mean, they're teaching, you know, the Book of Freedom is all about moving beyond collective structures of limitation that we've all gone into agreement with, what it means to be a man or a woman or wise or foolish or all of these things that are born in cultural heritage and the mores of history. And, you know, religion, they they say, and they're not opposed to religion, they say at the essence, at the core of every religion is the same truth. But what's been built on top of that tends to be structures that are political and economic and often fear-based. So, you know, I I get cautious sometimes even in the spiritual community, when people are talking about my tribe and my this or my that, which tends to invoke separation by nature of the idea of it and start supporting again the idea of separation. The guides say again and again and again, you can't be the light and hold another in darkness. 
and what you damn damns your back. They've said it so many times in so many ways. They say the, you know, the, the action of fear is to claim more fear. And separation is fear-based, you know, and we live in, and so the idea of a religion, I suspect, would decide that it's a religion which would make something else wrong, which is not what they teach. You know, I, I don't think, I, I wish I remember the word that they used to say why it was never going to be that and could never be that. Um, and I hear that there's no point to it. It's not the purpose of the teaching. One topic we've come back to a bunch in this series is how ayahuasca, a visionary tea from the Amazon jungle, has gone in such a short time from being an obscure medicine that was unavailable and virtually unknown in the West to being an increasingly popular consciousness disruptor served with regularity in urban centers across the country. It's an unlikely brew to be entering the mainstream, but that path is being forged by all kinds of forces, underground, without an informed public conversation about best practices and safety standards. ICEARS, which stands for the International Center for Ethnobotanical Education, Research, and Service, is an international nonprofit working to shape a future where psychoactive plant practices are valued and integrated into society. In this next excerpt, I speak with Ben Delonen, the founder and executive director of ICEARS, and Andrea Langlois, who is ICEARS' director of engagement. Then you'll hear our friend Dennis McKenna chime in. Dennis is an ICEARS advisor and brings a depth of perspective to this topic, the topic of visionary plants that few can match. Your own team, do you have people from the global south, people from the, from the Amazonian or, say, Gabonese local cultures on the team working with you? Because, you know, I mean, I'm looking around the table here at a bunch of gringo white folks, and that often is the case of what happens with NGOs or not-for-profits doing the good work on behalf of, quote-unquote, the other, right? And what's going on right now is we're discovering that there's no other. <laughs> and those, but it's more about disenfranchisement and, and, and difficulty actually getting into the positions where you get access to the funding and support that you have to create these kinds of institutions, like doing the good work that you're doing. But by not having that kind of representation directly from the people who are being represented, you can run into some challenges around priorities, around tactics, around all kinds of things. And I'm wondering what thought you might have around that. Yeah, I don't think we represent indigenous peoples, for example, in the UN. I think what we try to do is convene spaces or facilitate their way in so they can represent themselves. No, And, and so that's what we have done in the UN. That's why these World Ayahuasca Conferences for us are not a, an end goal. It's it, They're a tool. And bringing together all these, you know, indigenous communities, we work also a lot around kind of regulatory frameworks in our in more Western countries, no. So I guess we always try to convene space to work a lot with the grassroots, but be a bridge also because we have United Nations consultative status. We kind of, you know, we can bridge kind of the reality of the grassroots of indigenous cultures, but also more Western ayahuasca culture. And then kind of really out of that, uh, try to come with legal strategies to to defend them, uh, you know, to kind of with the community um, think about what is this future that we want to see and then go to the right venues to kind of make that advance, uh, that goal. You know? Yeah, well, and I think mm. pulling off of what Dennis was saying around this thing that happens where people drink ayahuasca or, or engage with another psychedelic and then they have this experience of I am, I am, we are one and I, I care about the planet and I'm of the planet Earth. I'm indigenous to the Earth. For us, right. I think, you know, um, if if ICERs can have the ear of people in the West who are waking up because of these experiences, you know, we want to then present people with information around, you know, this is what's happening in the Amazon. You know, people are struggling to maintain land rights. That You know, if you care about the plants, do you care about, you know, these other issues that are really being faced, life, life or death issues by Indigenous people, that it's not <clears throat> just about ayahuasca, it's about, about, you know, territory, about cultural rights, land rights security and safety of person. So yeah, I think the this idea of building a bridge 
And also, yeah, helping connect between different issues. Um, we can't, you know, be on the ground in the Amazon doing all of this work, but our hopes is that we can we can build bridge and help people access that knowledge and information about how to work in solidarity and support and, and just be more aware of what the struggles being faced by the people who are the traditional holders of these plants. I just want to say, I think Andrea just put her finger on a very important point, which is we're all indigenous to earth. Everyone is an indigenous person, and these are these are global issues, you know. And so, some people say, "Well, you 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 know, you're you're mis you're appropriating these, these cultural treasures from from indigenous groups." I don't agree with that. I think that I acknowledge indigenous groups for being the stewards of this knowledge, but to access to these plants or any plant should be a fundamental human right as long as the plant and the environment and the relationship is respected. In other words, uh, what's going on here in my perspective as a biologist who is interested in the interactions between, you might say, the global the global phytosphere, the flora of the planet and human beings, it's always been an evol- a co-evolutionary relationship. And I can see paths to re-articulate this relationship. For example, people worry about the drug problem. What are we going to do about the drug problem? How about step one? We articulate the principle that plants are not drugs. They're different than drugs. We get drugs from plants. Sometimes we purify drugs. But the basic idea is that that if you reframed that and basically said people have the right to form a symbiotic relationship with any plant that they want, that should be a fundamental human right. And that changes the whole tone of the legal conversation. What gives the government any right to stigmatize a plant like cannabis, for example, as a good example? Say this plant does not deserve to exist on the planet. Who has that authority? Mm-hmm. You know, governments arrogate to themselves that authority, but it's completely wrong. You know, I mean, because it just is. No one gave them that authority. So if you could change that conversation and say, yeah, we're, you know, as people who want to prevent people from being harmed by drugs— Let's implement a framework of reasonable ways of regulating drugs, you know, white powders, things that, you know, in a pure form are potentially more harmful. When it comes to plants, we're not interested. People should have the right to grow them, trade them, consume them, you know, uh, with a knowledge base of how to do it right. But the the government should not step in and and say, you can't have access to this plant. What's the end game for the legalization process? Can we imagine a time when the society is mature enough for the government essentially to say, hands off, be hands off, and allow everyone to use the plants they want to use the way they want to use them? Or does that invite another kind of crisis in our society, as opposed to, say, the indigenous cultures that have been working in a traditional way with ayahuasca or iboga or, you know, other, you know, powerful, uh, you know, plant spirit teachers, they have a way of, quote, unquote, self-regulating their use. Yes, but we have to borrow, we have to learn from those traditions. We can implement that knowledge in our own way. Of course, you have to have context. So, that you can use these things in as positive a way as possible and as healing a way as possible. But now being primates, you know, there are going to be people that abuse the use of these plants. But if the overall perspective is that there are positive ways to use them, then you know, that will become the prevailing prevailing practice. And if it could be used in a, in a social context, in any culture, perhaps centers where people can go and have these experiences, like people go to South America or, you know, then I think bringing the, uh, the healing potential of these plants to a wider audience rather than just the, the people who have 
medical problems, you know, and want treatment. I think we have to make it more widely available in a way that fosters all of these things. We're in the midst of creating a new kind of 21st century spirituality by weaving together strands that come from traditional mystical lineages that emphasize the importance of the direct experience of source, something new and vital is emerging. One of the most dynamic territories where this reinvention is taking place is the realm of Wicca and witchery. I was visited by the best-selling author and activist, Starhawk, who has inspired so many by how she expresses her spiritual connection to nature through committed political engagement. Starhawk talked about her own pioneering journey down this path. When did you first recognize that you were a witch? I was probably about 17 years old. I was at UCLA in my first year of college, and we took we did an anthropology project on witches. Met some witches. They started telling us about. Whoa, whoa, whoa. you met some witches. Please. We met some witches in UCLA at, in LA. In LA, yeah. In what was this? 1965 or it something. It was 60, uh, 67 or 68. Yeah. Okay. And what kind of witches were in LA in 68? <laughs> Lots of them. Really? Well, I had met them originally at the Renaissance Fair uh, in the Witch's Wood, and they had a shop selling herbs and candles and things. And so I can't remember how we reconnected with them as part of this project, but they came and started teaching us and telling us about this ancient spiritual tradition. And to me, it was so exciting. You know, I was raised Jewish and... I had been quite religious as a child. More, my parents were, you know, the reform generation. They were political. They weren't that religious. My grandparents were orthodox. But my own experiences of that deep connectedness weren't really happening in the temple or in study. They would happen in, in nature. And I was... 16, 17 years old. It was the 60s. It was the sexual revolution. It was all of that that was much more appealing than sitting and studying the Talmud. (laughs) (laughs) I can understand. So finding that there was actually, you know, a religious tradition, a spiritual tradition that said nature is sacred, that said sexuality is sacred, that said you as a woman can be a leader You know, you don't have to be relegated to being a Hebrew school teacher because that was before there were any women rabbis or cantors or anything. That was very, very exciting to me. And I kind of went, I'm a witch. (laughs) Was there a moment? Was was there a a point where where it really clearly hit you? It's like, whoa, because I would imagine that your first association with being a witch was a lot of the cliche popular culture stuff. Yeah which you may or may not have related to when you were younger. Did that appeal to you? You know, it was interesting to me and a little scary, all the popular stuff and the devil worship and all that stuff. But it was when I met these witches who were, they were from an American Celtic tradition, and they started to tell us about it, that something really clicked and said, yes, you know, this is giving a name to what I've always intuitively felt. And was that coming to you because of your participation in a kind of ceremonial activity or were you just kind of ha- having coffee? I think it was just in the conversation. And the, and then later we would do some ceremonies. We had a group that formed a coven where not sure what we did except we beat on sticks and sang songs and smoked marijuana. <laughs> I don't think we knew very much. But the witches we met, kind of also said, well, this is a discipline. It's a training. You know, if you really want to learn it, you actually don't smoke marijuana. You don't take drugs. Um, You learn how to make those shifts in consciousness without drugs. Oh, really? So they were deep in the mystical side. Yeah. Were they meditators? Like, what were they doing? Yeah, they gave us meditations and visualization exercises and things to read and They said, you have to exercise every day. You need to have a spiritual practice every day. I got involved in a feminist group in L.A., which is where I was living. 
we had a consciousness raising group. So we had a group of women where every week we'd get together, we'd have a topic, we'd talk about our own experiences. It might be your mother, it might be sexuality, it might be religion, it might be school, anything. And that was a lot of how the movement was organized at that time, was around these groups where, because we'd realized that, you know, all the political theories, all the psychological theories, that they were all by men about men. And how do you know what to believe when uh, there was a group called the Firesign Theater, a comedy group at the time who had a record that said, everything you know is wrong, you know, right? So how do you know what to believe? Well, you have to start by talking about your own experience and telling your own stories. And so we'd get together and we'd do that. And it was out of those groups that the whole feminist, you know, the Me Too movement of the time, the whole idea that rape is a political issue, not just a personal tragedy, that things like sexual harassment or battering of women were important issues that were part of a societal problem, not just a personal problem, that all came out of that process of consciousness raising. And so as part of our group, we talked about religion, we did some rituals, there were other groups in LA at the time that were starting to bring together, you know, the idea uh, we need to look at spirituality, we need to look at religion, we need to look at the way that as Mary Daly said, when God is male, then the male is God. You know, see if there ever was anything different or you know, could wow. be anything different. So it was a very exciting time. And What kind of rituals were you doing and where did they come from? How did you find them? Well, when I moved to San Francisco, I met a much larger community of witches up here. And some of it were people who actually had some kind of hereditary tradition in their family because there still were remnants of the old tradition that were left. There was one family I remember called the Tower family, and they said their tradition was, you know, when the witch hunters came, they were the refuge for people. They were the tower you could go to. Uh, I studied with a man named Victor Anderson, and his wife, Cora Anderson, who came from what they called the fairy tradition that uh, they claimed at least went back to the little people of Scotland from prehistoric times. Uh, and there were other traditions. There was a group in the Bay Area called Nerud, the New Reformed Orthodox Order of the Golden Dawn, that had started out of class in San Francisco State. It was a class in anthropology, and they created a ritual as part of the class and they did the ritual and the ritual worked for them <laughs> and they kept doing it and they created a whole tradition what kind of ritual what were they calling in with that ritual they were calling in the goddess and drawing down the moon so they had uh, looked at what other groups were doing and put something together and they had a very talented poet as part of their group who was that Aidan Kelly and they created a beautiful liturgy and it worked so we had groups and we would experiment. We'd take the nuggets of things that we knew or had learned or been taught and put them together. And then afterwards we'd go, well, how'd that work? That was cool. I love these people. I have been so lucky to get such great guests who really know what they're talking about and were so dedicated to doing their own bit to contribute to the consciousness shift that's happening across the planet. This is indeed global. There's a lot in motion. And by being here, listening now, you're a part of it. If this show is up your alley, please share on social media and leave a rating on iTunes. You can email us at theevolver at evolver.net. Remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcatcher of your choice. And you can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. This is a good time for me to express some thanks. This podcast wouldn't be happening without our producer, Jose Alfaro, who has been there from day one and continues to hold this thing up on his broad shoulders. I am also truly grateful to the amazing team around me, Evolver CEO, Lou Sagar, our general manager, Molly Suggs, Reality Sandwich's managing editor, 
Bass Sacleridis, and Evolver's creative director, Matt Youngblood. I'm also grateful to the people at Acast. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience. Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and here for a moment on the album Gone, Gone, Beyond. Go check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.